Jesus. Next week, we'll look at the humanity of Jesus. The following week, we'll look at the sonship of Jesus. And then the last week, on Christmas morning, we will look at the mission of Jesus. And so as we read our text this morning, all of our text this morning, focus on the fact that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine. And so I want you to see in our readings this morning just how the, the New Testament, that these documents, all written by people who personally knew Jesus or witnessed Jesus in the flesh, how clearly this New Testament has no problem calling the man Jesus Christ God. And so I have four texts uh, lined up for us, and in each of these texts we see a different author in the New Testament call Jesus God. So the very first one is John 1, 1 to 18. This is one of the most powerful statements of Jesus' divinity in the New Testament. Moira is going to read that for us. After that, Pat will come and read for us Romans 9, 12, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls Jesus God. After that, John will come up and read for us Hebrews 1, 7 and 8, where the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but he calls Jesus God. And then lastly, Kathy will come and read for us from 2 Peter 1, 1, where Peter, the Apostle, calls Jesus God. And so just be listening for that and prepare your hearts to adore Jesus as God this morning. So Moira, feel free to come on up. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Romans 9, 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hebrews 1, 7 through 8. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 2 Peter 1.1 Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, 
by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, again, beloved, the most amazing thing about Christmas is the fact that God became flesh. The fact that this happened, that God actually became a man, should stagger us. It should blow our minds that this could possibly happen, that the only God, the eternal God of all creation, took on human flesh. Beloved, this isn't supposed to make sense. It's not supposed to be easy to understand. It's not even supposed to be possible. No devout Jew in the Old Testament, no astute philosopher of any age, no person with real reverence for God, understanding how great and glorious God is, would ever imagine that it would be even possible for God to become man. Even to imagine it or to state that it happened almost seems like blasphemy. It seems absurd on its face. So different is God from man. If we get this wrong, we could easily be mistaken. People might think, what, do we believe in a God like Zeus? You know, a mighty figure who lives on a mountain? Or is our God like Odin or the hundreds of other gods that have a human form? Right? If those gods become man... It's not quite so surprising, right? They aren't that different from men in the first place. In some ways, they're just like man writ large. And yet, that's not at all the kind of God that we believe in. Just listen to some of the ways that Scripture itself talks about God, about who God is. First of all, there's a couple of Scriptures I want to draw your attention to that clearly states that God is not man or not like man. So Numbers 23, 19, God himself says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Or 1 Samuel 15, 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. In these verses, God is clearly stating that he is not like us. He is very different. Or there's many passages that even further distance who God is from what people are like. So Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Did you catch that? As the heavens are higher than the earth? (laughs) That's how different God is from us. That's how far above God is from us. Or who could forget God's incredible questioning of Job? I won't read the whole thing. I don't have time to do that here. God questions Job a long time. But just take a little sample of it. This is from Job chapter 38. God's speaking to Job and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star is saying together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. This is God speaking to man. God's point to Job in this line of questioning is very clear, is it not? God is saying, you are very small. 
I am very big. You are very weak. I am very mighty. You know hardly anything. I know absolutely everything. And on and on God could go, stating just how much greater he is than man, how much superior he is to all of humankind. In any place where Job or any human being would have lack, at that point, God has fullness. At any point where man is dependent, there God stands as a perfect source of sufficiency. So no, we don't believe in a God like Zeus or Odin, some God that's just man writ large. No, we believe in a God who is so far removed from human beings, so far superior, so far greater than human beings that it seems absurd to think that it could ever be the case that this God could become man. Christian, do you feel the tension that exists there between the reality of God and the smallness of mankind? Do you ever worry that perhaps your idea of God, your view of God has become a little bit smaller than maybe what the true God really is? I mean, of course, it's, it's wonderful. It is better than anything else that we get to live on this side of the cross, that we get to live on this side of the coming of Jesus. So yes, we get to look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we get to see God. But there is A risk here. There is a danger that we look so narrowly at Jesus in the flesh, Jesus as he walked the earth, that we forget the greatness of God. We forget that Jesus existed from eternity past, and he will exist to eternity future, that Jesus is not merely the man who walked the earth in Palestine for about 30 years in the first century. No, Jesus is Almighty God. He is the one who has existed forever and ever. So in this message, I mainly want us to look here at the absolute uniqueness and superiority of God. And then after we can kind of get our minds as best as we're able, get our minds around just how amazing God is, how different God is than anything that's created, then we'll be able to turn rightly to see how Jesus Christ is this God. Now, of course, in crafting the message this morning, trying to think, okay, how can I help us to understand who God is or what God is? Of course, just any thought of realistically being able to do that utterly escaped me. And so what I'm going to do now is really, I think, the, the best idea I have right now for just helping us grasp just how other God is, how distinct God is from creation, again, with the hopes of us seeing just how great God is so that we can then truly understand what it means that God would become man in Jesus Christ. And so in particular, I want to look at two attributes of God that really set God apart from anything created or anything that's even like anything remotely created. And so those two attributes of God that I want to look at are God's simplicity and God's aseity. God's simplicity and God's aseity. Now, I know maybe none of you really know what I mean when I say those words. Don't worry. I'm going to explain them. But I just want to be clear where I'm going. There's two different kinds of attributes of God that theologians have talked about. We've talked about communicable, 
communicable attributes of God, that means that those are attributes of God that we can somehow mirror in ourselves. So, for example, God is a God of love, and we're supposed to be a people of love. Or God is a righteous God, and we're supposed to be a righteous people. And so those are ways that we can be like God. But there are other ways that we have no possibility of being like God whatsoever. So God is eternal. But we are not eternal. We were born at a particular time and place. And before that, we didn't exist. And so that makes us very distinct from God. That is an incommunicable attribute of God. And so aseity and simplicity are two attributes of God that many theologians say are the most basic attributes of God. These are the two attributes that really set God apart as God. That when we understand these two attributes, then we really understand who God is. Who is this God that we believe in and what sets him apart from all other beings? So let me begin with the idea of God's simplicity. The idea of God's simplicity. The idea of God's simplicity springs from one of the most basic teachings of the Christian faith. And that basic teaching is that there is only one God. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. Monotheistic means that there is only one God. And this isn't just some deduction of philosophy, even though I think you could deduct it from philosophy. It is a clear teaching of the Bible. One of the most important verses in the whole Old Testament, a verse that I had to memorize in the Hebrew in my seminary days, is Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now there's much more meaning to this verse than to simply say that there is only one God, but at minimum, it does mean that there is only one God. And so you could say that we as Christians inherit this idea of one God from our Jewish lineage, from our Jewish ancestry. It is one of the most basic and incontrovertible claims of our faith that there is only one God. As soon as you move away from belief in one singular God, you move away from Christianity itself. There is no such thing as a Christian polytheist. Christians believe in one God, full stop. Now, if there's only one God, then that means that there is only one thing like God. And that is God himself. There are not various gradations of deity. So it's not like God is 100% God And then there's angels that are 90% God, and then humans that are 80% God, and so on and so forth. And maybe, you know, grass is 10% God or something like that. It's not like God's identity or God's characteristics are shared across other things or other people. No, God is God alone. There is no one else like him. He is entirely and utterly unique. So God alone is God and everything else is distinct from God completely. Everything else is created and only God is divine. So to say that there is only one God means that we also say that there is only one thing like God, that God stands apart in a class all of his own. Now there are many ways to get at this in Scripture But probably the clearest way is to look at the very first verse of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice how that is explained to us. It says that in the beginning, there was God, an entirely unique God, separate from all creation. 
And then this God created, made the heavens and the earth. There are other ancient creation myths where there is a a God at the very beginning, but then this God is somehow killed or defeated, and this God is broken up, and his body becomes different parts of creation. But this is not the Christian creation story. In our story, there is one God who has existed from eternity past, and then he makes everything else that is not him. And so God stands alone, and he is unique. And so from this, something else follows. And what follows from this is the doctrine of the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God simply states that God alone can be counted as God. Now, the one thing that Christian theologians throughout all ages have agreed on when it comes to God's simplicity is it also means that God does not have parts. God is not a composite being where different things have to come together to create who God is or what God is. If God were a composite being, that means that there would be something before God, right? There would be other things that would have to come together to make God who he is. But this is not what God is like. God is simple. He has no parts. He is entirely and utterly God. When you think about it, everything that's created, everything other than God, has parts of some kind. We human beings have parts, right? We have arm bones and leg bones. We have hearts and lungs and skin and eyes and everything else. There's many parts that come together to make up a human being. Even the very simplest thing that we could make, say something like a block of gold, has parts, It may be made entirely of gold, but it is made up of atoms. And atoms are made up of protons and neutrons and electrons. And as scientists have discovered, even protons and neutrons have different parts that make them up. Everything created has parts. And that means that everything created is dependent upon something else for its existence. They're dependent upon matter. They're dependent upon whatever causes them to come together. And so the fact that God is simple, the fact that God does not have parts, also means that God is not dependent on anyone or anything. And this is the doctrine of God's aseity. To say that God has aseity means that he is not dependent on anything whatsoever for his existence. He exists all by himself. Aseity is an old English word that people don't use much anymore. It comes from the Latin words ase, which mean from himself. So all of God's existence is from himself. Again, beloved, this is so dramatically different from me and you, is it not? We all come from our mom and our dad. We're all, to some extent, from the the people that shaped us. We're from the foods that we eat, from the experiences that we have. All of these things come together to make us who we are. We are not from ourselves. We do not belong to ourselves. We have obligations to others around us because of what others contribute to us. And yet this is exact opposite of how God is. God is assay. He is from himself. His existence comes from himself. Because he is simple, he is also, he also has a saity. He doesn't need anything else or anyone else to exist. When we come to God in relationship, 
We must never suppose that we can relate to God as one who has needs or as one who we can bribe. Too often when we come to God, we try and bargain with him, right? We try to say, well, God, if you just give me this, then I'll serve you. As if God needed our service. Or on the flip side, we might say, well, God, I was really faithful to you this week. I really think you kind of owe me now. You know, I've really done something for you, Lord. How about you show up for me? As if God needed us to serve him this week. As if that somehow affected God or was some benefit to him that he did not already have. This type of reasoning is a denial of God's aseity. It's not understanding that God exists from himself, from eternity past, and does not need anyone or anything. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Beloved, God is not dependent on anything or anyone. And therefore, we must not treat God like he somehow needs us, needs our worship, needs our service. It's not like God is sitting up in heaven on Saturday night saying, man, I really can't wait for Sunday morning, you know, when they all come together and they all give me praise. You know, it's been kind of a long week and I could really use someone to give me some credit here. No, God doesn't need our worship. If humanity never existed, if no one at all worshipped him, God would still be perfect in himself. He would still be joyous in himself. He would still be sufficient in himself. God has a seity. He is a say. And so let's continue to press into this idea of God being simple and God having a seity again so we can really see clearly just how amazing God is, just how other and above God is from all that we are. If God is entirely from himself and if God does not have any parts, that also means that God cannot be located in space or time, right? Because space and time can always be divided into parts, right? So there is no thereness to God. There is no way that we can put God in one place, but not in another place. Thomas Watson said well that God's center is everywhere, his circumference is nowhere. Meaning that there is no place where God is not. There is no place that has more of God or less of God. Or John of Damascus, who is an early Eastern Orthodox theologian, said the deity is indivisible, being everywhere holy in his entirety and not divided up part by part like that which has a body, but holy in everything and holy above everything. Are you starting to get the picture of just how different God is from mankind? It's hard for our brains to even wrap around this idea of God's simplicity, is it not? If God is simple, then this also means that whatever God is, God is completely. Meaning that there is nothing that can be ascribed to God that is not true of the totality of his being in all times and in all places. Right? Because there is no one part of God to ascribe to one thing and another part of God to ascribe another thing. 
So to say then, for example, that God is love is to say that God is the purest and best love, that God is love defined because there is no part of him that kicks against love, that resists love, that grows tired of love or has anything other than love. God is love in its purest form and anything else that is loving is only loving insofar as it approaches the pure and the perfect love of God. The same can be said of all of God's attributes. Again, because God is simple. Is God eternal? Then God is eternity itself and eternity defined. Is God patient, then he is patience itself and patience defined. Is God beautiful, then he is beauty itself and he is beauty defined. God's simplicity implies his purity and his completeness. It implies that there is no possibility for change in God because there is no one thing for him to change from, for him to change into. This is often called God's immutability and his eternity. Indeed, everything that is in God is God holy and completely. This is not merely a good inference. This also is stated by Scripture itself. James 1.17, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is and there can be no variation in God because God is simple. Because he is everywhere at once and not composed of any parts. God is purity and life itself. And so we believe in this God who is simple, who is everywhere all at once, who is entirely other than anything that is created. And who is therefore also has complete aseity, who is sufficient in himself, who doesn't need anything else to exist, who is perfect in himself. On Stephen Colbert's The Late Show, he had an interview once with a British comedian named Ricky Gervais, and the topic turned to the subject of God. Now, Colbert, I guess, is a committed Catholic, and Ricky Gervais is an atheist, and at one point, Colbert said that he believed in God. And Ricky Gervais answered, but there are 3,000 gods to choose from. So basically, you deny one less God than I do. You don't believe in 2,999 gods, and I don't believe in just one more. You see, when Ricky Gervais thought of God as just one more being among a long list of beings that we have to choose from, he was making a complete category mistake about who we believe God is, about what we believe God is. We believe that God does not have parts, The God is not dependent on anything else. He comes before everything else. We are not proposing the existence of something that is post-existence or of something that is part of creation on some list of created things. No, we are positing the one thing that precedes all creation, the one thing that is existence itself. For us, capital G God is not just one more option among a whole host of options. He is utterly and completely unique. And even the concept of him cannot be invented or added to. He can only be discovered and believed and trusted. And so we are not hypothesizing the existence of something out there as yet to be demonstrated or proven 
No, we are arguing that there is something, only one thing, that is the necessary first cause of everything else that exists. This God stands even before the creation of any brain that could conceive of it or invent some other God. He is not something we choose. He is not something that we make up. He is something and someone who chooses and who establishes all that is all by himself. This is who God is. It might be helpful to think of characters in a book, right? It's not hard to understand, is it, how Harry Potter could believe in the other characters in his book, right? It would be very easy for Harry Potter to believe that Voldemort exists, right? That Hagrid exists, that Dumbledore exists, that all these characters exist. After all, these other characters are creatures just like him. They are right around him. They make up his world. It would be impossible for him not to believe that they exist. But what about Harry Potter believing in J.K. Rowling? It would seem silly for him to believe in J.K. Rowling, right? J.K. Rowling is not in his world. J.K. Rowling isn't even the type of being that exists in his world. And yet his whole world would not exist apart from J.K. Rowling. Well, this then is God. This tells us about the simplicity and the aseity of God, that God is this one who stands outside of everything else, who has written the entire story of all creation and who is the necessary precondition for anything else and anyone else to exist. This is God, the unique one, the simple one, the one with complete aseity. Now, what this means in part is that whenever we as Christians are coming to try to understand God, we must never come to try to understand God in a proud way, as if we as mere creatures were able to totally wrap our minds around all that God is and all that God does. Part of the reality of God being ase and God being simple is to say That God is so different from us, so distinct from us, that all of our attempts to know God must come humbly. We must have a chastened knowledge of God, understanding that God exists in a way that we do not exist. And so even as we come to describe these realities, we come to describe these realities humbly, offering them up as the simple deductions of our understanding of Scripture saying we know that we don't know everything, but we want to believe everything that God has spoken, and therefore that is what we try to do. And so, as we read the story of Scripture, and as we read through the Old Testament in particular, and we do see that this God is simple, that he is ase, and so our minds start to be formed around this idea that God is not man, that God could not be like man, Right? Because man is dependent upon other things. Because man has many parts. Because man falls apart. All of these reasons why God could not be man. And then we come, as we read just a few moments ago, to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, we read these words. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't it hard to wrap your mind around this idea that we have one God 
who is utterly simple, who does not have any parts. And yet it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we go down just a few more verses, and we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And all of a sudden, all of our magnificent reasoning about how great God is, about how other God, how other God is, has to suddenly take a back seat to this reality that God became flesh. Again, just listen to these other verses that we read. Romans 9, verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all. Christ, who is God over all. How could this be? Or Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Second Peter 1, 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The same writers who believed everything that I just spoke to you, who believed that God was this entirely other being who had no parts, who was not dependent on anything else. These same people who believed these incredible realities about who God is claimed that Jesus Christ, the one who was born in a manger on Christmas morning, was God himself, God in the flesh. Now, beloved, precisely because this was so hard to believe, it was not very popularly believed for many centuries. For the first 350 years or so of Christian history, the subject of who or what Jesus was was very hotly debated. In fact, some historians in doing research on the early church think that In the year 315, which was the year that Constantine, the emperor of Rome, converted to Christianity, that as much as 70% of those who claimed to be Christians actually believed that Jesus was a created being, that he was something less than God. And again, it's very easy to understand why they would believe this, is it not? Because it is so hard to understand how God could really become man. But into this amazing state of affairs, this terrible state of affairs that so many who claim to be followers of Christ don't believe that Christ is actually God, stood a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. And one of the most famous ways to describe Athanasius is to say Athanasius contra mundum or Athanasius against the world. And that's because Athanasius stood almost alone for the divinity of Christ, for the full godness of Jesus Christ, when so many around him in his day were rejecting the idea that Jesus could be God. When Athanasius was about 20 years old, he traveled up to Constantinople in the year 325, where there was the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Council of Nicaea was a council that was called by Constantine, about 
10 years after he had converted to Christianity and Constantine called this council because he realized that this issue of Jesus' divinity was tearing his empire apart. That there were many who were called Arians who didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus and there were others who did believe in the divinity of Jesus and these two just kept fighting and fighting. And so Constantine finally said, I've had enough You all get together and you figure out what you're going to believe so we don't have to have this fight anymore. And Constantine himself, as I said, was leaning towards adopting the Aryan position because he saw that that's where the majority was. And again, he wanted peace more than anything else. So he was hoping that this council would come together and that they would form some type of creed or statement that would affirm the Aryan position so this all could just be over with. But again, into this fray came Athanasius and a few other bishops who were willing to stand with him. And they battled in that council of Nicaea to fight for the full divinity of Jesus Christ. And in just a few moments when we come to take the Lord's Supper, we will together recite the Nicene Creed that captures for us the true Christian teaching about the identity of Jesus Christ. And what they came to craft in that Council of Nicaea is the idea that Jesus truly is fully God and that Jesus is also fully man. And they tried to put these two things together as best they could not taking away from Jesus' divinity to make his humanity, not taking away from his humanity to make his divinity, but simply standing on this ground of Scripture that, yes, Jesus is fully man, and yes, Jesus is fully God. And as I was reading about this history, even just this week, I kept asking myself the question, why did they care so much about whether Jesus was fully divine or not? Why did it matter so much to them that they even risked their lives? Athanasius himself was exiled from his own place of being a bishop five different times in his life because the Arians kept coming in and kicking him out of his home. And so why did he take the stand to claim that Jesus was indeed fully God? Well, helpfully, Athanasius has a little book called On the Incarnation that you can go out and you can buy yourself and you can read. It's not a long read. I encourage you all to read it. In fact, there's a really nice version with an introduction by C.S. Lewis. It's a very well-known introduction. You might even be familiar with it. And in that book, Athanasius lays down the reasons why it is so important for us as believers to understand that Jesus is indeed fully God. And so as I was studying that this week, there were two main reasons that really stood out to me that Athanasius gives for why the divinity of Jesus, the absolute divinity of Jesus, is so important. The first reason that Athanasius gives is that if Jesus is truly God, and only if Jesus is fully God, does he have the power to entirely recreate or renew or redeem anything that has been broken. In other words, the the work of Christ, especially his work on the cross, is fully sufficient to redeem the entire world only if Jesus is God. 
And it is sufficient precisely because Jesus is the creator of the whole world. And if Jesus is the creator of the whole world, then surely he can be the redeemer of the whole world. Meaning that there is no aspect of all creation that cannot be reconciled, that cannot be fixed by the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And so what this ultimately means, beloved, is that we ought to rest fully in the redemption of Jesus Christ. We ought to have full confidence that if we come to Christ, we will be healed completely. We don't need to come to Jesus Christ just to fix us in one small way, and then we need to go somewhere else to be fixed in some other way. We don't need to go to Jesus to be fixed spiritually and then to the psychologist to be fixed mentally and then to the entertainers to be fixed emotionally and go to all these different places so that we can finally be whole people. No, Jesus is the creator of everything and he knows everything about us. He created everything about us and therefore he alone can fix everything about us. I know how tempting it can be when life still seems so difficult, even after we've trusted in Jesus, to go and try to find some good self-help ideas or to try to go down the road of science, the science of psychology or try to go to pop culture ideas of self-care or self-worth. And we try to go to all these different things to say, maybe this idea over here can fix me. Maybe this idea over here can fix me, can solve this problem that I feel in my heart. But what Athanasius realized is that if Jesus Christ is truly God, then that means that the grace that comes through Jesus Christ can heal you completely. And there is no need for any other Savior. There is no need for any other kind of help. We need God. And God came to us in Jesus Christ. The times in my own life where I have felt most whole, most alive, most complete, the times where I have felt least alone, least struggling, least frustrated, are the times when I was closest to Jesus. The times when I felt like I knew him best, like I was nearest to him. When I am near to him, I do feel myself to be nearest to satisfaction and joy and wholeness and completeness. And this is because Jesus is God. In the times when I am further away from Jesus, looking for other answers to the problems of my life, those are the times when I find myself most struggling, most frustrated, most lost, most without answers. And so the first reason why it's critical for us to understand this full divinity of Jesus and for us to understand, again, that God himself is above and before all creation is because only then do we have a picture of God and a picture of Jesus Christ big enough to say that he can heal the whole person and not only the whole person, but he can heal the whole society, he can heal the whole world, and that one day he will return and he will make all things new. That is the power that Jesus has being very God, a very God. The second main reason that Athanasius gave for why it's so critical for us to understand and to believe that Jesus is God is that it's only if Jesus is God, then that which he restores can be made to last forever and ever. 
It's only if Jesus is God that he can make that which he restores to last forever and ever. Again, as we were talking about the nature of God, as we were talking about God's simplicity and God's aseity, I said that this implies that God is eternal, that he has no beginning, that he has no end. Another biblical word that's used for this is that God is incorruptible. And so... If Jesus is that God, then that means that the salvation that he offers to us has no end. It can never be taken away. It can never be corrupted. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Beloved, the day is coming because Jesus is God that we who are mortal will put on immortality. Or 2 Peter 1.4. It says, by which he granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, because Jesus is God and because Jesus became man, that means that Jesus is able to bring man to God. Jesus is able to make what is mortal to become partakers of the divine nature. You see, Jesus, as God, had no corruptibility in himself. He had no death in himself. And so if Jesus wanted to die, if Jesus wanted to help those who are corruptible, he had to borrow the nature of something else in order to redeem that other thing because he could not die in his nature as God. He could not perish. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus took on flesh. Jesus took on the form of mankind precisely so that he could die, precisely so that he could be joined to you and me so that we could then come to God. So that just as Jesus was with God from all eternity past and then came to earth in the flesh, So now we can now come to know God as God has been from all eternity past because we come to God in Jesus Christ. This is the beauty and the wonder of the full divinity of Jesus Christ. It means we get full access to God. We get full access to incorruptibility, full access to eternity, full access to the fullness of joy. Because Jesus is fully God. And it is only if Jesus is fully God that we get this full access to God in himself. And so, beloved, I encourage you, I exhort you to stand even as Athanasius stood. To stand for the full deity of Jesus Christ, even knowing how other God is knowing how different God is. Nevertheless, say, but no, this God is the man, Jesus Christ. And as we believe that this God is the man, Jesus Christ, know that Jesus Christ fully brings us to God himself into one perfect union forever and ever. And so let us rejoice in the greatness of Jesus. Let us rejoice in just how distinct God is knowing that he alone can satisfy our souls forever 
and ever. Would you go with me to God in prayer right now? Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you because you are not dependent upon anything. Because you have no parts, there is nowhere where you are not. You can never be divided or separated. You are forever and ever fully God. And so we praise you, Lord, and we rejoice that you have become man in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you will help our minds to grasp this reality, help our hearts to rejoice in this reality, that we might know the fullness of fellowship with you. Lord, would you receive our prayers now as your people? Prayers of confession and repentance, prayers of intercession for our church and for this world. Lord, we come to you now knowing that you can hear and knowing that you can move. Will you hear our prayers?